when it comes to meditation, there's these 40 traditional meditation topics for, for de developing concentration. And the classical one is Anapanasati. And usually the instruction is given to pay attention to the breath entering the nose. But there's a whole bunch of additional meditation topics. So there's 39 other ones, right? Within Anapanasati, uh, breath meditation, you can find teachers who will teach it like if you find 200 teachers, they'll have 250 different ways to teach it. There's kind of the basics if you pay attention to the breath, but how long you pay attention to the breath and whether you count the breaths or not and where you pay attention to it and what it is you're doing with your mind. and uh, These things are all very kind of subtle changes or subtle different approaches that, that can be instructed about. Right? Probably it falls really into like three different categories of, of, of breath meditation. And uh, Paul Xaida's method was oriented towards very trying to quickly get the meditator to a state called access concentration. And from access concentration to encounter a technical milestone called a nimitta. A nimitta is like a, a sign that sort of arises in your uh, inner awareness. And it's very... It's very sort of noticeable, so there's no sort of mistaking it. And uh, when you arrive at that point, then Pollock wants you to go like in a different direction. So the first step is to kind of like settle your mind down enough that you can get, get to the nimitta. And uh, for most Westerners, that's a pretty big challenge right there. That might take you a year. Right? It might take you two years. You might never actually get it. But Pollock just says, well, just sit there and, and just follow your breath until you see a nimitta. That's the instruction, right? So, so you can, like, you go, okay, you sit there, and, okay, no nimitta today. So, so you do an interview every day with, with the teacher. And, um, you know, so he just keeps encouraging you to keep, keep sitting, keep sitting, and you keep trying, keep trying. Um, and I could see that, okay, I'm probably going to need a little more structure than that. It wasn't, my mind wandered too much, and I could, I'd get frustrated, and I'd lose my motivation. And so all things were, things were happening with my, uh, my personality interacting with that instruction, it, just, it wasn't going to work for me. I spent quite a bit of time actually talking to the other Western meditators that were there, and talking to the monks that were there, and uh, being sick in the clinic, and so I, that's how that retreat went. Other retreats I've done, I've done um, jhana retreats with a teacher named Lee Brasington in uh, Washington. And uh, he teaches a, a technique that was taught to him by his teacher, whose name, she was a nun uh, by the name of Ayakema. And Ayakema was, uh, she died like in 1998 or something like that. Uh, she was a quite, quite a well-loved teacher. Um, she learned the jhanas more or less spontaneously in her practice and, and had, it, uh, had it kind of, Confirmed and maybe received additional instruction from a, a preeminent uh, meditation master in Sri Lanka. So she was teaching kind of a, a kind of a Sri Lankan style of of jhanas, and I did that. I found that quite productive that style of, of practice. But like any other retreat, it's like you get up in the morning and you meditate and meditate for a long time for a while, and then maybe you have breakfast and you meditate some more and lunch and more meditation, dhamma talk, meditate some more get a little bit of sleep, wake up in the morning, meditate. And so, you know, retreats are like that. You just kind of go through this routine. Every day is pretty much the same. But your meditation is doing all kinds of stuff. And, uh, in those cases, I, I didn't have trouble with sickness or distraction. Or, you know. 
So that's techniques work better for me. And I became a, a big fan of Iacema. Mm -hmm. So much so that when I got to California and they, you know, they were, they were going to ordain me as a monk, they decided to name me after her. Hence <laughs> <laughs> my name. Yeah. So I'm named after Iacema. It's my favorite, one of my favorite teachers. So like the person is the first station, Goikiji says Bunga. You get there first and then we'll talk. It's sort of that's how you said that first station was. Could be I don't know what Bunga is. Uh, bunga is the dissolution of the body. Ah, okay. Observe the the Bavanga. Bavanga. Yeah. So there's I mean there there are these milestones that you you're, uh, and there's there's different systems. There's uh, um, I don't really know the the Goenka system, but certainly like in the Mahasi Saida system, which you know, also comes out of Burma. All the all the systems that are that have a name, you know, like the Pawak Saida system and the Mahasi Saida system and the Goenka system, um, they're coming out of Burma. The Burmese like a system. You know, they like something that they can put a name to, in essence, a fair bit of structure to it, a lot of discipline. Ajahn Chah doesn't really have a system. Not, 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 not as such. He doesn't teach like a very systematic uh, approach. And so the Thai forest tradition works for a lot of people. You know? And so it's, it's certainly, uh, if, if you're attracted to this tradition, it's certainly worth a try. You know, to try and see what it's like to just watch your mind, basically, and put forth effort. Uh, try to calm the mind, keep it peaceful, and then use the calm mind to investigate your moment-to-moment -moment experience in the, you could say, like the six sense doors, but really what's going on in your mind. And what's usually going on in your mind is some combination of sensory input and thinking and emotions. And if you, if you, can, if you can find this, the place where you can sort of step back and watch what happens without getting involved, then sooner or later you'll see how suffering is created. And that's where, where all the systems are, are, are aimed. Right, is to get the mind to the point where it's able to discern suffering, the cause of suffering, the, uh, the cessation of suffering, and the way that leads to the cessation of suffering. So it's the Four Noble Truths arising in your own direct experience. That would you, that's what you're trying to see. So all the meditation techniques which are trying to get you to a nimitta or the jhanas or all that, just a means to an end. Right? It, that's not the goal. It's just a, a milestones along the way. And there are, there's more than one way to get there. You don't necessarily have to have first John, a second John, a third John, a fourth John before you can see the truth. So, yeah, it's important. Every meditator has to figure out what works for them. Um, when you are monk in a particular tradition, you can change from one position to the other. Well, once you're, once you're ordained in the sort of this Theravadan tradition, there's all these little sub-schools. Mm -hmm. So within the Thai, there's the Mahanakai uh, school, if you will, and there's also the Dhammayut school. And so Ajahn, uh, Ajahn Jeff, uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, he's in the Dhammayut, and Ajahn Chah and, and Arlen Nature were part of the Mahanakai. But we're both out of, the Thai, out of Thailand, and we both are uh, reckoned as a forest tradition. But... Because of their, their own internal rules, the Dhammayut monks wouldn't accept a Mahanakai monk to join their group, to join their monastery unless he disrobed and reordained in their school. Right? So you, have to start. you have to start from scratch. 
Whereas I could probably go down to, say, Bhante Gunaratana in Virginia. He's got a monastery down there. He's from Sri Lanka. And I know a monk who spent a couple of years there in our tradition, joined their monastery, was participated in their, their life there, um, and they didn't require him to reordain. So uh, it's, it's pretty much up to an individual order to decide whether they're willing to accept monks from other traditions or not within the Theravada. Now, outside the Theravada, I have no idea. I mean, I, I really doubt that the Mahayana uh, orders would accept us as, as monastics. They'd have to start probably from scratch. And certainly the same goes for us. Like if a Zen monk came to us or a Tibetan monk came to us and wanted to join our monastery, we'd be happy to have them as a guest, but they, they couldn't go to our Padimoka, or for example, or other Sangha Kama. Uh, they, they'd have to ordain in our tradition in order to do that because we're, we're really different in our. But it doesn't mean that we do, we we think they're wrong. We're just you know it's just it's just kind of the way traditions work. In fact, uh, in California, the monastery that I was at there has a very close relationship, sort of a very collegial relationship with the Mahayana monastery slash community called the City of Ten Thousand Buddhas which is uh, a few uh, 20 miles away and uh, that's a Chinese school of Mahayana they have a they have a, a, a vinaya which is the rules for the monks their vinaya is very similar to our vinaya and so we found ourselves to be very compatible a lot of respect both ways but you know fundamentally if they wanted to switch to our method of, do, of living and join one of our monasteries they'd have to ordain in our tradition Yes. Could you talk a little bit about dependent origination? Well, I don't know if it's possible to talk about dependent origination a little bit. Uh, but okay, we'll take a stab at it. Dependent origination is a teaching, uh, it's, it's, you can almost say it's the core teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha was trying to, to help us understand like how the world works, right? We, we all think that we know what's going on here, right? You're like, here I am in my body. This is my body. I'm here, and you all are out there somewhere, right? And everybody has that same experience of having an inside and an outside and a sense of sort of like knowing where they are, what's going on. Like, that's up, this is down, the fan is turning, the sun is up, you can hear my voice. There's this constant sense of an ongoing flow of reality that seems to be more or less like self-explanatory. It doesn't require any analysis, it's just direct experience, and we think we know what's going on, like what it's all about. So much so that we don't, we don't, we don't more ordinarily think about how uh, how unlikely it all is. So, for example, if you if you sort of calm your mind and you and you open your eyes and you look at your hand and you do that, right? So now you took something which is materiality, this material thing, and with just the action of your mind, you made it move from here to there. Right? You don't know how you did that. Like, you, you can say, well, you know, I just wanted to move my hand, so I just moved my hand. But how did you move your hand? In other words, it starts off as a mental impulse to move your hand. And we can say, well, well you know, maybe if you understand a little bit about neurology and physiology and biology, you, you understand, okay, well, there's these, these nerves that originate in the brain, and they create uh, a, a, 
a potential uh, of, of chemical electro, electrochemical uh, impulse that travels down your nerve plexus, which exits from your one of your vertebrae in your spine, travels down to the muscles in your shoulder, which uh, which then respond to the to those nerve impulses, causing the muscles to contract. Right, so the muscles are made of proteins, and so the proteins are actually um, stimulated to use their own energy to uh, climb up each other like this. Right, so the muscles contract and they they make the arm raise. But you don't know how you did any of that. Like it, it's, you didn't do any of it, really. Your your muscles did things. Your nerves did things. Uh, clusters of ner of neurons in your brain did things. But the you who you think you are, like you don't know how any of it works. You don't know how you digest food. You don't know how you circulate blood. You don't know how thoughts arise. They just arise. But you think that they're yours. So this this presumption that that there's a person at the center of things making things happen and having experiences and knowing the world, that perception is very, very functional. It's very useful. It's how we get along in the world. Right? You wouldn't be able to go to school and have a job and go through life for the most part if you didn't more or less have the same viewpoint as everybody else has, which is like, I'm just this person in the world and I pretty much know what the world's about. Right? This is the ground, and that's the ceiling, and you know, there's, this is empty space, and I'm breathing air right now. All these things seem so real, so proper, and we don't have to have questions about it. Because if we did, if we, like, we actually had to think our way through every breath, through every motion, through every thought, sort of created it from scratch, then we'd be paralyzed. We wouldn't be able to do anything because it's just so complicated. So the vast majority of our life happens on automatic, our whole body more or less runs on automatic. Um, and yet we still think that it's us doing things. So when you start to examine it, you see, well, there's, there's, like, there's kind of this puzzle here, right? Like I just said, like you can move your hand and not really understand how you moved it. You just know that you did. Like somehow you're involved, it seems like, but you don't know how things happen. So this, uh, this dependent origination is a way is another way of coming at uh, the truth of things. I said earlier that the whole point of meditation, the whole point of practice, is to get down to suffering, its cause, the end of suffering, or how, how suffering can be brought to an end, and the way that you, the path of development that leads to that. So that's like uh, a framework that can be used to pursue the Buddha's goal. The goal of the Buddha is enlightenment. Dependent origination is like another way of kind of coming at it, you can say. So uh, what the Buddha investigated in order to develop his own enlightenment is what he called dependent origination. And the idea behind it, you could say, is that rather than try to figure out how you move your hand or how, how it is that we're here or where the planet came from or why, there's, why we breathe air, he was thinking in, in the categories of the, the causes of suffering the necessary elements of it. And he started with he started with death. He says, what is the necessary circumstance for death to occur? Well, birth. If something's born, it has to die. If there's death, that means there had to have been birth. Those two things are connected. As soon as there's a birth, death is immediately implicit. You can't have one without the other. And sort of vice versa. If there is death, there must have been birth. Um, but it's not just like coming out of a womb and then going into a grave. There's a, a level of subtlety to it 
that's greater than that. It's, it has more to do with, with if something falls apart, a, a mood falls apart, a institution falls apart, a relationship falls apart, uh, a job falls apart, a gathering falls apart, a birthday party falls apart. But there, if there was a something that comes to an end, there had to have been a birth of that something. Right? So almost anything that you can identify as like existing, you know, uh, uh, this tea that we're having now is like a moment in time that we can sort of, in our memories, identify like, oh, that's the day that we had tea, right? There was, there was a time when we had tea together. Well, when this tea ends, that'll be the death of it, and it'll be gone forever, other than in our memories. But it also had to have a, a start. It came from somewhere. There's a beginning and an end to everything that you can identify in existence. And, you know, we identify the word death with sort of like the, the ultimate futility, failure, and pain of human existence is the thing that hangs over us like like uh, sort of doom. You know, everything that we do is colored by the fact that we're going to die. Uh, if, we were, if we were immortal and we weren't going to die, our, our, of course, human experience would be almost unrecognizable. Right? So... Even uh, things like how much money to spend on what and when, all kind of the entire economy is based on the idea that you're going to live for a certain amount of time, you have to get as much out of life as you can, and the future that lies before you is only so long. It's only, you know, uh, depending on how old you are, for me it's, you know, 20 years or 30 years, something like that, maybe, if I've got some idea of a statistical future for myself. Of course, my actual future might only be another minute. Who knows, right? You're, there's no sort of in an individual case. But you maybe you have a certain sense that as a human being, you know, we live for 80 or 90 years and then we die. So, so putting in place a plan to do something that's going to take you 400 years to do, you would never take it on because you, you just don't live that long. Right? So everything, that's, it's, everything in our lives is kind of scaled on how long things last. Well, everything has that same characteristic. This carpet won't last forever, right? This building won't last forever. Uh, anything that exists won't last forever. But bringing it back to ourselves, the Buddha was making the point that our, like our individual deaths are conditioned by birth. Uh, and so, so there's both that the specific of our our own individual case, and then there's this more general point that you see when you start investigating. Uh, dependent origination, that everything that can be said to exist is characterized the same way. If it exists, it had to have been born, and if it was born, it has to die. You know, trees, planets, stars, everything. There's, no, there's nothing that's excluded from that truth. And so the Buddha takes it deeper, and most of what we experience as existing is coming into us through our sense doors. So we have these, the, the eyes, the ears, the, the tactile body, uh, the tongue, the nose, and of course our brain. Right? So the, each one of these is an organ that's able to, to touch the external world somehow, receive information from the external world, and bring it into the theater of the mind. Right? So without the six sense bases, nothing exists. So the six sense bases are like a necessary part of the equipment for existence itself to, to happen. For, for you to experience existence, your own or anything else, you have to have the six sense bases for at least some good subset of those, specifically the mind. And 
the sixth sense bases, of course, depend on you know having a physical body. You can't really have one without the other. You can have there can be a physical body with no senses, but that doesn't really count as a human being. But there can never be senses without a physical body. Right. So uh, there's there's an, another element of our experience of existence that's really really important. Uh, so it shows that if you investigate the six sense bases, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind, what you see, what you experience, is that yes, the entire world and everything in it, the past and the future and the present, all these things come in through the sense sense bases. Without the sense bases, there is no existence. So you could almost say, well, what causes existence? Well, the existence uh, is caused by or depends on the six sense bases. Okay, well, what causes the six sense bases? And so he was kind of working back through this list of things that that come about. Well, the six sense bases are obviously uh, in a mechanical sort of way or a direct way of physicality associated with this particular body, this particular physical existence. But our, you might say, our ownership of them, the the idea that that I am this person and I have these six senses and reality is happening to me. I am something which is happening in reality. This is coming about, you could say, and what the Buddha saw, from a series of not very well worked out presumptions. At the bottom of it is this presumption of you, you could say it's almost a, it's a presumption of existence itself. So this chain of origination, this, this dependent origination, it has these links in it that he talks about, you know, conditioned by birth, death arises, or uh, when, when, de- when birth is absent, death is absent. You know, when there's when the six sense bases are absent, then the whole uh, birth thing doesn't really happen. So they're all connected together, and they're all, they all have their root ultimately in the belief in the, the existence of a separate self. This belief, this view of the world, uh, of existence and oneself in it, as something which is like ultimately true, that's, he, that, that belief, he could, you could say, he, he labeled it as ignorance. It's a, it's a kind of not knowing the truth that's there. If you knew the truth, you wouldn't believe all those things, and then you wouldn't you wouldn't take ownership of the six sense bases, and ultimately you wouldn't be constantly being born in the world. But since you do believe in it, you grasp at all the aspects of existence habitually, without thinking about it, just like you habitually, without thinking about it, move your hands around, right? You don't have to think about it, you just do it all the time. But you have no idea how you do it. And so it's, it's kind of going back to the, to, the, to the fundamentals of existence itself and seeing how existence springs out of a presumption of a being. With, with that presumption is seen through, seen as merely a mental fabrication, then existence itself is simply, you could say, decomposed into its phenomenological or experiential components without having any narrative to it, without having any point of view in it that belongs to anybody. So this is like the experience of not being a self. That's not, that's not so much the goal of Buddhism, but it's something that it has to be seen very clearly in order for it to be understood, for ignorance to be dispelled. When ignorance is dispelled, then there's this kind of freedom that arises. And ignorance can only be dispelled through a very deep, direct knowing 
of the nature of this ignorance and uh, abandoning that ignorance, basically substituting knowledge for ignorance. So when knowledge arises, then freedom arises. The freedom basically not to be bound up in the idea that I'm a self separate from everything else in the world and my death is a tragedy. Like I, like, like I, I have this body, this is my body. All these kind of viewpoints spring from the idea like I'm a self. So insofar as one's able to stop grasping at those things, then they're no longer one's own. Like one's bodies, and what happens to one's body is, is fundamentally no more important than what happens to this cup. It's just materiality, and it, it comes and it goes. It always does that. It doesn't belong to anybody. It's just a force of nature. And so you don't have to be either delighted or depressed by whatever happens to it. But you can see this is like a completely different way of coming to the same conclusion, right? Which is the suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the way that leads to the end of suffering. So dependent origination really is, you could say, almost a restatement of those four noble truths. It's just a, a, a more technical, analytical way of coming to the same conclusion. Or you could say that the four noble truths are like a really succinct summary of a full understanding of dependent origination. Both of them can only be understood through practice. Right? So talking about them to some extent is useful for motivation, for clarification, for dispelling uh, misunderstandings, but you can't really get it unless you practice deeply. And practicing means the Eightfold Noble Path, which is the fourth of the Four Noble Truths. It means right speech, right action, right livelihood, right intention, right view, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. So the, the, those three words are the three categories into which each one of the components of the Eightfold Noble Path fall. Sila is basically conduct which is appropriate for a spiritual seeker. It means basically good behavior, good speech. Samadhi is the development of meditation, concentration. And then wisdom is the development of knowledge about the nature of dependent origination. <laughs> it's seeing how the body, the mind, the six sense spheres, the five aggregates, it's seeing how the world comes into being and how the mind grabs onto it and in that grasping creates suffering for itself. So it all comes back to the same thing over and over again. It's just this, that uh, one has to practice. One sees. When one sees and understands, one is able to let go. When one lets go, there's freedom and the end of suffering, which is what it's all about. So I didn't really go into the into the details of each one of the links of dependent origination because it's a it's it's difficult to talk about unless uh, we're, we're, we've all got the same sort of level of practice. So above a certain level, it's not even practical, right? Uh, if you're deep in the in the midst of a meditation retreat and you're seeing some aspect of dependent origination and you go to your teacher with that, then you can get into really detailed subtle discussion about that aspect of it and it's useful because then it'll help you direct your meditation or point your investigation where it needs to go but to get into that level of detail in, in a general discussion it doesn't leave anything it just create confusion really so so it's not it's not worth much more than i think than that other than insofar as like okay if there's questions let's talk about that some more but fundamentally you know 
practice. <laughs> like to take the understanding that you have and practice with it until you actually see enough to, to have a, a set of questions to ask about what's really going on here. And practice answers most of your questions. It actually, good practice will usually um, bring up questions and answer them almost as fast as you can gen- generate them. It's a good practice clarifies things. It doesn't make it more confusing. But too much talk can muddy up things and make it more confusing and less easy to understand. So it's kind of like a reasonable limit that you have to put on, on trying to get all the details because it's not, it's not understanding all the details of the map that's going to uh, help you practice. It's really the only thing that will actually do it is practice itself. Uh, practice clarifies everything in the end. Yes. Did Buddha uh, ever speak about longevity advice so you can uh, have the body as long as, like he died 80, right? Mm-hmm. So like uh, anything, did he talk about how to be able to practice as long as, use your, you know, because you have a limited time in the body. Yeah, well, he pointed out that no one knows when they're going to die. Um, you can't really count on living beyond the end of the next breath or the end of this breath right so this in breath and then it's out breath that's about the duration that you can count on being able to live if you live beyond that that's just good luck right it's good karma uh, coming to you when you're on a meditation retreat if you can hold that level of urgency uh, like that level of, of attentiveness like this could be my last last breath like I'm really going to experience this breath you know if you can get into that depth of attention and, and carry that from breath to breath to breath, then at that point, it's actually, now you're really living. Up until that point, you've been wasting your time. So it doesn't matter how long you live. What matters is how, how you live while you're alive. The only advice that I could think of that he gave about sort of health and longevity, I would say, is that he, he suggested that um, people who do, or meditators who do walking meditation, you know, they, they sleep easily and they, they're able to go on journeys and so they're healthy. There might be a couple other little things like that. Uh, don't eat too much. <laughs> uh, don't sleep too much. And none of, that, none of these uh, indulgences are good for you. And um, avoid war. Right? Don't, don't, go no, don't go near armies. or uh, For monks, there's a whole bunch of rules actually around uh, what's called suitable resort. So, so monks aren't supposed to like hang out with highwaymen or gangs of thieves or houses of ill repute of various sorts. They're supposed to kind of keep to themselves, stay away from most aspects of society. That might lead to a longer life, but who knows, maybe not. So, But his view, I think, was much more in line with you're going to live however long you're going to live, and when your number's up, nothing you can do about it. Time to go. So since you don't know when that's going to be, the only actual strategy that's worth following is to minimize the complexity of your life, get it down to as simple as you can, and then spend as much time as you can uh, trying to realize the truth. Uh, and once you realize the truth, then you can, as he said, have a pleasant abiding in the here and now. Right? You're, if your work is done, then you, you can relax. <laughs> Until then, you should practice. It's, it's true that if we force our, our practice too much, it's not good. We also have to have a relaxed Totally, yeah, you, you, you can't. He gave a great simile. Uh, there, was a, there was a monk who was 
really practicing hard. He's practicing so hard that when he was walking, he was doing so much walking meditation that his, he made his feet bleed. Right, so he had, he um, he just kind of overdoing it, sitting and walking and making his feet bleed too much. So uh, the Buddha went to him and he says, "Well, you know, before you became a monk, you used to be a musician, right? A lute player, you know, a guitar player." Uh, he says, "Yeah." I says, so, well, what would happen to the lute if you if you made the, tr- the strings too loose? He says, "Well, it wouldn't make any music. It just kind of sound horrible." And he says, well, what if you made it too tight? He says, well, then the strings would break and, it's, and you couldn't make any music. He says, same with the meditation. Right? you got to find a place where the strings are not too tight, but not too loose. And uh, then you get, like, easy music. So it's, it's kind of like you're, yeah, that's the way to look at it. Is you're, you're trying to find a balance between slackness and tension, right? Uh, but the only way you can actually do that is to, is to like, put your attention on it and care about it. Right? If you put all your attention on it and you're really kind of like pinning all your hopes on getting the, getting to Nibbana before you die and you're desperate and afraid that you're not going to do it and you're kind of you're really tense, then you might yeah, overdo it and break your strings as it were. If you think, oh, I'll get around to that tomorrow. You know, right now I'm going to uh, I'm going to read this People magazine, and uh, <laughs> I'm going to go to a movie, and then I'm going to have some wine with dinner, and you know you can go through life really fast, uh, years and years, just doing other things. Meditation kind of takes a backseat, or practice takes a backseat. But if you're if you have that attitude of like, um, I'm I'm a musician and I'm playing music, the only way you can actually do that is to keep your instrument tuned, and pay attention to what you're doing. Right? So if you just bang at the strings, it won't make any music. It'll make horrible noise. But if you if you know a tune and you're trying to pick it out on the lute, then you can actually create a tune. Um, so it just requires that kind of level of engagement, but not just with meditation, with everything that you do. And so you kind of bring that attitude of like, this is part of my practice. You know? And that's why there's that's why there's sila samadhi and panya. Right. So when you're when you're engaging in work duties, interaction with other people, travel, whatever it is that you have to do in the world, that's where sila is really important. That's where you're practicing sila, like first and foremost. And in order to do th- to do that well, you have to bring mindfulness to to your actions and mindfulness to your speech. So uh, that's that counts. That's practice. That's what ripens in the ability to hold still and pay attention to your breath for a long time. Uh, if you can't bring mindfulness and good sila to your ordinary daily life, then when it gets when it's time to sit down and, and pay attention to the breath, it's going to be hard to get the mind to settle. So the, the two are, are constantly interacting with each other. So it's not, it's not that the Buddha was saying you should meditate 24 hours a day. There are times in practice when that's what you do, but not not your whole life, right? But there, it's like you spend your whole life making sure that you're not undermining yourself, that, you, that you'll have the ability to, to do it when, when the time comes. When it's time to meditate 24 hours a day in order to make that final push, in order to get something, in order to, to achieve an insight that you're, you can feel that you're close to it. You'll only arrive at that point if you've been practicing in daily life. And, you know, so sila and mindfulness in daily life is really, really important. But, yeah, not with a desperate attitude. It should be kind of useful, I mean, friendly, you know, sort of uh, uh, maybe even lighthearted to some extent so that it doesn't feel oppressive. Practice should not feel oppressive. He, he called it a gradual path. 
And so it's not like you kind of practice, 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 and then one day, boom, you're, you know, now you're enlightened. It's more like it's a gradual, a gradual ascent. And this gradual ascent, as you practice the path, and you're you know kind of bringing sila to your everyday and bringing more and more mindfulness into what you do and how you speak and how you conduct yourself in the world, and spending time every day and sometimes multiple days doing serious meditation practice, slowly, slowly, the causes of suffering start to become lighter. Like you, you find yourself being less interested in, in grasping things. You find it easier to let go of anger, easier to let go of, of, of greed. Those are the causes of suffering. So eventually you start to see them as like not very attractive. So you, you really no longer want to hold on to them. You recognize them as a problem before they, they get going. And so even before you've seen Nibbana, you have a, a tremendous amount of happiness in your life that you wouldn't have had if you weren't a practitioner. Right? Most people are just kind of pushed around by the circumstances of their life. You know, if something good happens, they're happy. If something bad happens, they're unhappy. But a practitioner can, can get to a point where if something bad happens, they're at ease and peaceful. If something good happens, they're not excited, they're still at ease and they're peaceful. And so they, they have a kind of a balance that, uh, and, a, and a steadiness that uh, is lacking in, in most people's lives. Yes? Are you able to speak a little bit more to this idea of like suffering and um, letting go of, of certain suffering? Sure. Um, because I think like what I just said was, you know, like the more you sort of practice, and, like, mm-hmm. eventually you just kind of eases up. But mm-hmm. Yeah, you get, get happier and happier, basically. That's the whole idea of practice. If you're practicing correctly, you'll find that you, there's less and less stress, difficulty, and unhappiness in your mind. Right? Your external circumstances might be still difficult, but your reaction to your circumstances becomes less and less problematic. And this is maybe the, the, the core of suffering, is, is uh, uh, what happens in your mind rather than what happens in your life. There's this, uh, this great sutta in which the Buddha talks about the two arrows. So he compares a, a, an ordinary person to a man who's on, on a battlefield who's been stricken by an arrow. Right? And this first arrow is just the, the impact of life itself. Right? You've got a body and you get arthritis. Ow. Yeah. Uh, the second arrow, but she says uh, an ordinary man is struck by two arrows. And the second arrow goes right in where the first arrow went in and hurts twice as much. And the second arrow is taking it personally and making a problem out of it. So if you see the arthritis as your arthritis and your problem, and oh no, what am I going to do? I won't be able to raise my hands above my head. I won't be able to feed myself. I'm going to suffer this horrible pain my whole life and you know, make a big problem out of it. Because what you're actually experiencing, if you're experiencing the pain of arthritis in one of your joints, what you're actually experiencing is sensation. It's just one of the sense doors. And it's a painful, it's an unpleasant sensation maybe, but it's not continuous. It's not lasting you know, 24 hours a day. As soon as you stop moving and relax, then it becomes less. Even if you've got chronic pain, it's like you can't actually pay attention to it 24 hours a day. Uh, so the first arrow is painful, but the second arrow is where the suffering comes from. It's the, it's the mind grasping onto the pleasant or the mind grasping onto the unpleasant, deciding that it belongs to me, and then trying to, trying to somehow protect the, the pleasant and trying to somehow push away the unpleasant. 
So in our lives, the pleasant and the unpleasant sort of show up. They come whether we want them or not. <clears throat> if we want them, then of course we're chasing after the pleasant and running away from the unpleasant. Um, if we're just minding our own business and something unpleasant happens, then okay, that, that's not going to last forever. Right? It's going to have some sort of lifespan to it. If you are a good practitioner and something unpleasant happens, and your immediate reaction will be, oh, that's, this is unpleasant and it's happening. And then you just sort of write it until it starts to fade away and something else comes along. But you don't take ownership of it and you don't make yourself suffer over it. So that's right there, right in that active, that, that ability to see something unpleasant. Like say someone says something bad to you. They say something insulting to you. Right? It's an unpleasant to hear someone give you an insult. Uh, you know, they say, oh, that's really sloppy. You know, or something else that's kind of cuts you a little bit. Um, you know, it's natural to, to have that hurt a little bit. It's unpleasant. But if you like, feel the hurt and then just drop it, in five minutes, something else will be, you know, at the center of your attention. But if you hold on to it, you could take that comment and you could just, you know, keep it and keep hurting yourself with it over and over and over. Keep playing it back in your mind. And, oh, that was very, you shouldn't have said that to me. Why did he say that to me? And, you know, you can just go on and on and on. And that that's just you doing this to yourself, you know. That's not that's not the person who said the thing. They said their thing and they left. But you, you then you take it and you just keep hitting yourself over and over and over again. That's suffering. And that's the thing that you don't have to do. That's optional. So the, there's kind of a, a modern saying, which is that uh, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. You don't have to suffer. And so that's the, the, the skill of being a practitioner. You, get, you start to see how it is that the mind grabs onto things, the pleasant or the unpleasant, and then carries it around. and keeps like hitting itself with the unpleasant and keeps like chasing after the pleasant trying to get more of it or trying to protect it or you know being afraid that it's going to lose it or whatever but making a story out of it and having a self that's at the center of the story who's going to suffer if he or she doesn't get their way so um this whole creation this is birth <laughs> this is the world being created in the mind the self is being created from one moment to the next fabricated out of the content of daily activity daily contact if there's nobody, if, you, if the mind isn't grasping onto things, and the mind isn't fabricating a self to be the center of the story, then there isn't any of those things. There isn't any one who, ha, who is suffering or might suffer or needs to avoid suffering or etc. Pleasantness is just pleasantness, and unpleasantness is just unpleasantness. And that's the end of the story. And all of it's coming and going. All of it's constantly changing. It never holds still. And that's that truth gets seen to the extent where the whole thing looks like not worth clinging on to, not worth grabbing. And then the impulse to grab just kind of gets dropped. And right there, there's so much freedom. There's so much freedom that there's so much suffering that's not being indulged in or not being uh, agreed to. Uh, that's that's more or less what suffering is all about. So even if you're a practitioner and you never have some sort of like magical mind ex blowing experience where you know, the sun and the moon and the stars all change sides and you know you're floating in the air and blah blah blah, some you know magical mystical thing happens to you. That doesn't count. That doesn't mean anything because it's just an experience that comes and goes. Right. What means something is can you sit in the center of your experience? 
with pleasant and unpleasant arising and coming and going without grasping at it, without being hurt by life more than what it just actually does hurt, without hurting yourself on top of it, uh, can you let go of the causes of suffering? If you can, then you're free. If you cannot, then you're still stuck. And the cause of that stuckness is the ignorance that there's something here that's worth grabbing onto. That's why you practice. You want to see it so clearly that you realize, oh, there's nothing here worth grasping. And then you don't want to anymore. Until you see it, you're, you're kind of unconsciously grasping onto it. And you don't realize that you're grasping onto it. It's almost like you've got some uh, grasping mechanism inside you that just grabs onto things and it won't let go because it's sure that if it lets go, death will ensue. Like you'll die. Right? So actually, letting go that deeply feels like agreeing to death. Like jumping off a cliff sort of thing. So it's not easy. You can't sort of force yourself to do it. The only way you can do it is to see directly how this grasping is causing the pain that you feel. And that this... scary because it seems like death but it's really just freedom so that's that takes like a lot of very close looking at like how grasping it comes about how it's associated with fear of death uh, seeing how how it causes suffering how there isn't really anything to be afraid of because nothing can be lost like the self doesn't exist anyway so how's it going to die you have to kind of get down to that level where you actually see for yourself but until you see it for yourself it's just a nice theory but when you do see it for yourself, no one can convince you otherwise, because you've seen. So that's that's really what you're trying to do as a practitioner, is see directly what's going on there. And do you try to work a lot with your sensation? Or... Yeah, that's the best place to work, you know? You can't really work with the, with the contents of thought. Like, so if you're thinking about, well, yes, the Buddha lived 2,500 years ago, and there's been all this time, you start thinking about, like, anything. As soon as you get into the content of the thinking, then it's like you're lost. Right? The only time that that's actually can be done is when your meditation is really, really strong. And then you can see thoughts come up and dance around and then vanish again. Right? When you can see that, then it's like, oh, it's fun. It's kind of fun almost to see your thoughts. See your brain do what it does. And you're like, yeah, there it goes again. You're no longer sold that there's something worth following there. So you just see thoughts come up, see them do their thing. And as soon as you look at them, they break apart. You see their insubstantiality and you're not caught. That's very useful. But if your meditation isn't strong enough to allow you to do that, uh, the place to spend, to spend your time is in the body. So um, like right now, if you close your eyes and just feel your right hand, what does it feel like? Your right hand, this one here, what does it feel like? You know, it's touching something right now. What does that touching sensation feel like? Is there any warmth in it? Is there any coldness in it? Do you notice any sort of uh, smoothness or roughness or buzzing or vibration or uh, the pulse of your blood through the veins? Can you feel the breeze of the air from the fan touching the hairs in the back? Can you sense the ridges of your own fingerprints. Right? If you really put yourself in there, you can feel all that stuff. And none of it uh, 
can be tasted. None of it can be seen. None of it can be heard. It's all just the body. Right? So it's, 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 it's in one, just one of the sense spheres. Right? You can, can do the same thing with the eye. You can do the same thing with the ear. But the, at the level of sensation, the sensations that you feel when you're holding still, they're not up to you. Like, that's one of the things, things you start to notice right away. That what you're feeling with your hand is happening by itself. You're not choosing to feel it other than putting your attention on it. But the sensations themselves are arising spontaneously. So when you're, if you get lost in the, if you start thinking and you get lost in thought, there is a certain kind of willfulness where one thought, you're kind of like making another thought happen and another thought happen. You're involved, you're engaged, and you're kind of making it happen. But this part here where this, you're just feeling the hand, um, the sensations that are arising, yeah, you're not doing anything. You're just, you're just knowing it. And that, that ability to sort of stand back and watch without thinking that you're in charge, to experience the world as though you're not in charge because you aren't, um, that's a really good skill to develop. The more you can have that, that uh, observer attitude toward, your, toward your, the sensations in your body, the more you can bring that same observer attitude towards to your emotions, to your reactions to things, to uh, whatever happens in the world, in addition to that. So it's kind of a skill that you're developing. Yeah. We can say that whatever arises in the mind, they respond to the sensation in the body. Or it could be the other way around. Yeah. For sure, the, what, what happens in the mind is a continuous flow. It's a continuous flow of, of sensory impressions, memories, thoughts, intentions, emotions, uh, ideas, verbalizations, more sensations come in on top of that. And it's just one damn thing after another, over and over and over. So it just, it, but it flows like this kind of waterfall, almost. The mind is like this kind of continuously self-renewing experience. It's uh, constantly being uh, colored by sensations. Uh, and it could, sensations from the, door, from the sense door. So what you're hearing, what you're seeing, what you're touching, those are the primary ones. And then, of course, if you're eating, what you're smelling, what you're tasting, they are conditioning the mind. The mind is constantly reacting to those things. And it's also reacting to the thing that it just thought a minute ago. So it's reacting to its own contents. It's, all, it's being kind of pushed around by, by itself as well as everything else. But it's hard to see that unless you really narrow down the field to just one thing. So you pay attention to sensations. And after a while, you get pretty good at doing that. Eventually, you'll notice that something will happen, like you'll feel a bug, a bug crawl over your foot, and then your mind will do something in reaction to that. And you'll go, huh, that thought arose because the bug crawled over my foot. I didn't choose to think the thought. It just came up all by itself. And when you watch that, observe that happening over and over again, then you realize that thoughts have the same ownerless quality, the same lack of, a, of somebody that they belong to as sensations do. Right? They're just happening all by themselves. And if you don't get involved, they come and they go. If you do get involved, then of course you can push them along in a certain track. But uh, if you don't, they just rise and fall. So again, you, you, you're trying to cultivate this attitude of the mindful observer watching what happens. And what one of the things that you conclude is that it's constantly changing and that it's happening by itself. No one's in control. And if you try to control it all, then you're just grasping and you're going to suffer on account of it. So, so you're seeing what's called the three characteristics in that. And that's uh, something that has to be seen very deeply in order to get down to letting go.
So it's all connected to that as well. What is it, why is it when in meditation there's like this ringing noise and sometimes screaming, shouting? Like they're not even thoughts, but they're sounds, but they're, no one else, it's nothing's playing. Or I know what is the sound of silence. There's a certain hum or ringing noise. Well, in meditation, you're taking the mind to a, uh, a state. The brain, you're taking the brain to a state, which is a little bit different than ordinary waking consciousness. It's somewhere between waking consciousness or somewhere in the realm of uh, a dream state, but not quite. It's, there's, still some, there's still like a considerable amount of alertness and uh, mindfulness involved if you're doing it properly. But because the mind is in a much, uh, the brain is in a state which is like, you could say closer to sleep or closer to the dream state, there can be the arising of spontaneous sounds, spontaneous imagery, spontaneous sensations. A lot of people will, will experience in deep meditation, will experience like a crawling sensation on their skin or feelings of, of their hair standing up on end or sudden feeling of uh, heat, you know. So these things are just like uh, kind of spontaneous arisings that happen because of the, the state that the, that the brain is in, the neurology is in this state. None of these things are real. They're just the mind, the, the brain generating spontaneous perceptions uh, which correlate to sensory inputs from the body. Uh, the, the truth of the matter is that the body's always dumping in a huge amount of sensory input into the brainstem. So it's almost like the, the brainstem has, uh, is having a press conference and there's 10,000 reporters and they're all shouting questions. And the brainstem goes, you, What's your question? And it ignores everybody else. So, so, so even though they're all shouting, the brainstem only pays attention to the things that it actually cares about. It filters everything out. So when the brain starts to go into the different state, some of these filtering activities can be like uh, relaxed. And stuff that's always been there starts kind of getting through before the filters go back up again. None of it's a problem. It just isn't. So if you don't, read anything into it, all you'll see is that it arises for a while and persists for however long it persists and then goes away and something else happens. Yeah. None of it's none of it's a problem. That's that's pretty much my take on what's going on there. Yeah. Yeah, okay, explain that when you stop reacting to sensation, mm -hmm. your old reaction come up as a weird stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah, so so probably what he's talking about is if there's a, a habitual suppression yeah. of some sort that, that uh, the mind has been uh, subconsciously employing as a way of avoiding certain sensations. So a lot of people's brains uh, during development will come up with a strategy for avoiding uh, painful feelings, painful sensations, and these things will often be uh, arise out of traumatic experiences in childhood. And many of them will tend to correlate with some kind of a, what's called body armoring, a kind of a tension in the body. Uh, usually shows up in the shoulders and the neck, a kind of a stiffness, almost like a fear reaction that's frozen in the body. Yeah? So as the body starts to relax um, in meditation, uh, and you're paying attention to the sensations, if that armoring relax, relaxes, then the, the thing that's being defended against with that armor can sort of like get through. The, the filter suddenly is gone, and now the noise that's always been there makes it through. And it came from past life also? You know, the, the whole past life thing about like previous actual physical existences in this human realm, um, 
I would say that uh, I'm on the fence about that one. I, I don't really know. I, I haven't seen it for myself. Um, but certainly there's uh, plenty of people who, who are totally convinced that past lives are real and that uh, a lot of the comma of this life is coming from a past life. That's as good an explanation as any, but, but in, in effect, it's sort of like... Uh, it's a question sort of like the Catholic scholars used to ask, you know, like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? You know, is it a thousand or is it a hundred thousand? It doesn't really matter because we can't actually know directly. The only thing that counts is what you can directly experience. What you believe doesn't matter at all, but what you can experience is it's possible for experience to teach you something about the nature of reality that's true. That's actually literally true and it's sort of like repeatable. But believing something about past life or life after death or whatever else, that's maybe functional in the sense that it gives you a certain uh, way of relating to things. Right? It gives you a, a framework to work with. But it's not necessarily something that you can prove or verify. So, so to, to take it beyond the this, this scope of like, well, it's just a kind of a, a, a skillful means of dealing with the world, it's not really useful to take it beyond that. You know, we do that all the time. We have a frame of reference that's good enough, that's good enough approximations for daily living, and uh, we don't have to take it beyond that point. So the idea, like, for example, the Earth is at the center of the universe and everything goes around it. Like, so the stars are all going around the Earth every day. The sun goes around the Earth every day. Well, if you sit here and you look out the, out the window, it looks like that, right? It's just a viewpoint, though, right? Uh, something that's closer to the truth, truth is that the Earth itself is spinning and the stars are kind of holding still and it just looks like they're spinning around. If we look at the fan, well, uh, it looks like this fan is spinning, but maybe it, the fan's holding still and the room's spinning. Right? <laughs> uh, uh, so the, the, the past life, future life, life after death things, these are our, our viewpoints that, that mm, you know, they're, they're kind of like taking the view that the sun rises over there and sets over there. It's, it's, it's a good enough, uh, it's a working kind of a strategy of framing experience. But to say that it's, literal, it's actually true, that the earth is holding still, the earth is flat, and the sun rises over there and travels across the sky. And, you know, there's problems with that. You start looking really close, right? Um, so people start really investigating very closely this idea of past lives, uh, you get some, you might say, contradictory reports. And unfortunately, none of it can really be uh, independently verified. Or very little of it sh shows the possibility of being independently verifiable. So, uh, and then at the bottom, pragmatically, it doesn't matter. Right? Unless, you can, unless, it's, unless it's, uh, pertains to practice, pertains to uh, realizing freedom, it's, you know, sort of neither here nor there, as it were. <laughs>